Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's good to be back with you again today. All right, I have about four main topics I want to get to, but first I did want to quickly mention that I think Google may be uh, uh, sort of de-ranking the website Bible Prophecy Talk this podcast website uh, a little bit. It's typically this this podcast for in the last year is uh, ranked really high, often right near the top for its keywords, Bible prophecy, Bible prophecy podcast, that kind of thing. But Google has in the last few weeks sort of really uh, lessened that. It still is pretty high in things like Bing and other things. I mentioned it to say that uh, it really does help if you re- review the podcast on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Uh, so just a quick note about that. So the first thing I wanted to quickly cover is this chart that I just put out on Twitter and uh, some other places. Basically, it is a checklist of all the things that the Antichrist does according to the Bible. It's just a little uh, chart for people to look at and sort of remember all the things that the Bible says about the Antichrist. So it kind of puts into context whatever their current theory is on the Antichrist. Uh, I call it for, uh, for your crazy uncle... Uh, this is that chart. So basically, it's all the things I could think of that have to do with the Antichrist. I tried to make them very neutral. That is to say, it's not really about my theory or your theory. It's just about what the Bible says, what most people would agree the Bible says about the Antichrist. I came up with a lot of them. There are scripture references here, but I'm not going to read them uh, for the interest of just time and it being podcast format. So uh, here is the uh, the checklist. He receives a mortal wound that is healed. The whole earth marvels at his recovery from a mortal wound. The whole earth worships and follows the beast. The whole earth is impressed with his military capability. He speaks blasphemies against God. He is given authority for 42 months, allowed to make war against saints and to conquer them, given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, sits in the temple and declares himself to be God, causes the greatest persecution of all time. He will honor his God with gold, silver, and precious stones. He will make his allies rulers of many people and distribute the land at a price. His name is somehow associated with the number 666. He will be attacked by the king of the north and the king of the south, but he will defeat both of them in decisive battles. He will attack and defeat many in the glorious land, but these will escape. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. He will extend his power over Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya, taking full control of their gold, silver, and riches. He will hear of rumors of wars from the east and annihilate many there. He will set up his royal tents in Israel, in or near Jerusalem. Ten kings will come from his kingdom, three of which he will subdue. He will try to change the, quote, times and the law. He will make a, quote, covenant with many. He will end sacrifices at the temple three and a half years after the covenant. And this is the final one. It's a little long. He has a sidekick that pretends to be a prophet, exercises all of the authority of the Antichrist on his behalf, causes people to, quote, worship the Antichrist, causes fire to come down from heaven in front of people, makes an image of the Antichrist, causes the world to worship that image or to be killed uh, by it, causes everyone to get a mark on their right hand or forehead with a number, which is the number of the Antichrist's name. So the next thing I want to talk about is some of the reasons why it's important to believe what the Bible says about the rapture, believe the truth about the rapture. 
Um, and here I am going to presume uh, that the rapture is the pre-wrath rapture. Please go check out the video, uh, the movie, Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the Pre-Wrath Rapture. I know every time I try not to lead with anything about pre-wrath because I know a lot of people just check out at that point. I certainly would have when I was a pre-tribber. Like, oh, this guy's a heretic. I better better go find another podcast. But just before you leave, go check out the movie, Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the Pre-Wrath Rapture, because of this. Because pre-trib, the scholars have changed their positions fundamentally in the last 10 years. And you need to know what they're actually teaching now at the highest levels because your pastor doesn't know. And he is teaching something that the pre-trib scholars have already rejected. So you need to know what's been changing if you want to be a good pre-tribber and at least know how to defend against people like me that know what pre-trib is currently teaching and why. I'm doing this because a lot of people in the comments of that, that film, most of the comments have been really positive, And the negative stuff has mostly been surrounding the idea of, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. It'll all pan out in the end. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what you believe about the rapture. And that's kind of not true. It really does matter what you believe about the rapture. And I'll give you four of my reasons. There's more reasons why it matters. But here are just uh, some that I have been thinking about. Uh, the first is Jesus's commands to watch. Jesus's biggest sermon, his only sermon about the end times, really, uh, is the Olivet Discourse. He's talked about it here and there, John 14, the Departing Discourse, some different places he's talked about it. But really, the Olivet Discourse is the centerpiece of our, our eschatology. Um, and you can see elements of Paul uh, in First and Second Thessalonians and other places about that he clearly got most of his eschatology from that Olivet Discourse. I mentioned that because three quarters of that that sermon from our Lord is about the importance of watching for the signs of his return. In pre-tribulationalism, uh, they interpret that, or they used to uh, interpret it uh, up until very, very recently. Some people like Blazing and, and, and Hart have come up with alternatives. Uh, but for the most part, classical pre-tribulationalism pre has always taught that the watching for the signs was all about watching for signs of Armageddon, which, of course, is absurd. Uh, there's no reason for even the quote-unquote tribulation saints to watch for signs of Armageddon. Everybody will know when it will happen. It will be 1,290 days after the midpoint. Everybody will know when the midpoint happens because Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, the idea of uh, people being carefree right up until the day of Armageddon, marrying and giving in marriage right up until the day is absurd because you've got the trumpet and bold judgments. Every living thing in the sea is dead. There's no clean water. You've been stung by uh, demon scorpions from the pit of hell for five months. There's going to be no carefree people marrying and giving in marriage right up until the day of Armageddon. So everybody knows that you, you can read pre-trib commentaries. They don't have an answer for any of that. Never really have. That's why the need for the, the changes. But my point is, that's a huge part. You can see in the early church, the first document outside the New Testament, the Didache, spends quite a lot of time on the last chapter is about Matthew 24 and the importance that they saw and that, that really all the early church saw and, and really most non-pre-tribbers know is that Jesus spent three quarters of that thing telling us to watch. The wise and foolish virgins, how does he end that? He says, watch therefore because you don't know the day or the hour. He's, he, they, they're being taken because they, they watched. However you want to view that, it's important for us to watch for the signs of the rapture. And if you're a pre-tribber, you literally think that none of that's for you, that it's for the tribulation saints or the Jews or somebody else, but definitely not for you. And so you're missing out on this huge list of commands, something that Jesus thought was important. And so it should therefore be important to us. And that's 
if you need no other reason, that's a reason. You're missing out on a massive uh, teaching about uh, commanding to watch that clearly Jesus thinks is ultra important. Um, The next one is something that people say a lot, and I'm going to include it here because I do think it matters. If the preacher of rapture doesn't happen... Um, and we automatically we're in a situation where the Antichrist, there's going to be a lot of disillusioned people. Now they say that's where the falling away is going to come from. All the people that are disillusioned because they didn't get the rapture or whatever, and so they're going to be to, to fall away. And I don't know how it's going to play out. I, I honestly, my guess about the falling away, the great apostasy. Uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, the falling away. Paul calls it the apostasy or rebellion in Second uh, Thessalonians 2. But whatever, uh, whatever it is, it's a, it's a mass exodus of Christianity, and I think that it happens in association with the uh, the Great Tribulation. That is to say, it's all mixed in with the persecution. The Antichrist persecutes the the Church. Uh, that great ultimatum is given: worship me or be a part of these guys that I'm persecuting. Worship me, get the get the mark. That way, you can be a part of society and you know think that the great utopia is coming, and we can all. Uh, think that we're doing something great, uh, or you can join these guys who were hunting down and, and killing and and uh, whatever. And so a lot of people will say, yeah, I think I'll be a part of the group that's not being killed, and that is apostasy because you're rejecting to be with uh, you know the, the Christians who are being killed. So I think it has something to do with the abomination of desolation, but I don't think it's going to be all that simple. My personal view is that whatever the Antichrist does, it's going to be a slick deception. I mean, if you've ever dealt with something that Satan's doing that has deception, whether it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, the uh, uh, New Age, whatever, you, you, every, he's all over the place doing, he's got his hands in all kinds of stuff. And if you've ever been close to that deception, you know, if you've ever read any kind of automatic writings and stuff like that, you're like, wow, this is clever. That is some clever, clever deception. That is just like top-notch deception. I mention that because if you, if you know that, then you better be ready for like the, the greatest deception of all time with the Antichrist. I mentioned that to say, I think that whatever the Antichrist does, in my view, he's going to pretend to be somebody for the Christians. Like the, the, those other Christians that are running away, they had some kind of weird, bad theology. He's going to teach a new theology that's going to be like something that's kind of geared for the Christians in a way. Obviously not the Christians that are running away and saying, not me, I'm out of here. But he's going to have a carrot as well as a stick. And I believe that because they will be convinced, probably, hopefully not, that, well, you saw the rapture wasn't a thing. So you know that the Bible, you know, it's it's interpreted a little bit different. Uh, So let me give you just another little spin on it. And so, yeah, actually, the Messiah, whatever he's going to do, I think that, that it could play into that. So Let's just leave that second one as if you are a pre-tribber and the rapture doesn't happen, you can be disillusioned and, in fact, be falling, be part of the great falling away, the great apostasy. But I interpret that as, if that is the case, that they will be uh, easier prey for a new interpretation, a new spin on the Bible, which they'll want to believe because they also don't want to be a part of the group that's being killed. So they're kind of, you know, we will want to believe the new explanation and they will have there will be some authority to that because they will be able to say, well, that is true. The the rapture never happened, so maybe I was sort of reading that a little weird or whatever. So that's number two. Number three, and this is really the one I wanted to talk about, was was something that I learned while making the film or relearned, I guess, 
which is the freedom that comes from embracing the fact that if you are the generation that sees the end times, you will, you will be certainly persecuted and put to death. And that acceptance of that possibility, no, no, certainly not all the people in the, in the uh, great tribulation that are being chased are going to be caught because they're are going to be those who are alive and remain and get raptured, of course. So, uh, but they'll certainly be, you know, on the run, not exactly living good lives, uh, not getting the mark of the beast and those kind of things. They have to, they're not exactly going to be in a great position. They're going to be hated and persecuted and all that kind of stuff, but not all of them will die or be killed. But I would say the majority of them will. Jesus says that if it wasn't for it being cut short, then no flesh would be saved. So a lot of people are going to die. We know the fifth, Seal martyrs in Revelation 6 cry out, How long, holy and true, until you judge those who have been killing us? If you understand that, you know that if you are in the end times, you've already made peace with that idea of essentially being tortured to death. And like so many things, um, looking at the worst case scenario, uh, just dead in the eyes and saying, Okay, worst case scenario, it's you and me. I've, I've, I've wrestled with you, and now I've put you behind me. Now, obviously, if it comes time for it to happen, it's going to be a whole new thing. But in, in a sense, it'll be easier because I've had all this time to, to recognize it and to, to look at what Jesus says about rejoice uh, when people persecute you for my name's sake. All that stuff, you get to meditate on that stuff. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that contrasted with the pre-tribber, who believes that they uh, are not uh, going to be persecuted if they are in the end times, but rather raptured. And I should say that they have a little bit of a, uh, a two, two-faced kind of idea here. A lot of pre-tribbers will say that, oh yeah, well, persecution is happening to other Christians in different places right now. And it is possible that pre- persecution can come to the church uh, in the near future and right before, you know, all this stuff happens, it's it's kind of hard to understand what it is that they think that they're going to escape in terms of persecution. But the general idea is, uh, among pre-tribbers, is that they won't have to face any uh, particularly bad things before the rapture. It can happen at any moment when it does, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, for them, it is going to be a bit uh, of, a, of a shock. It's going to be something that they have to learn and say, you know, very quickly and deal with at a time that's not going to be great to deal with it. So I think it is freeing uh, to say, uh, to look it in the eyes and to say, hey, I am going to be killed someday. The odds are if I'm in the end times, I'm going to be killed, tortured, hated. And um, I've made peace with that. And in a way, I've sort of prepared mentally for that. So it does, I believe, help you in other aspects of your Christian life because everything is sort of looked in uh, at in relationship to that. I mean, I really do. I look at a lot of things in life and weigh them uh, in light of that fact. You know, I will be extremely excited at the moment of my death. My wife has mentioned the same thing. If we walk up and we find out it's, it's a guillotine and we're like, all oh, right, a guillotine, high five. You know, obviously it's going to be more traumatic than that. But in a way, internally, we're going to be like, wow, I was hoping for the guillotine. And that's actually a pretty sweet way to go. I mean, it as it goes, that's a pretty quick uh, way, especially if it is for uh, for uh, Christ. 
there are other things that I could die for and will die for on principle, you know, things that I believe in and, and, and will die for. I don't want to have to die for them just because I would rather die for Christ. But, you know, if I got to die for something. Anyway, I uh, got a little bit off topic there. So that's my third one. Accepting your death is not only freeing, uh, but it sort of helps you interpret life. And I feel like that that's a gift that a pre-tripper just doesn't have. The last one is kind of a twofer because they're sort of related. It's the idea that if you believe correctly about these verses, there's a lot of verses like, I don't know, maybe eight or nine verses about this issue. If you believe correctly about it, they're a wonderful gift to the Christian. But if you don't, it's kind of like a terrible burden. And I'm talking about what I call in the section on the film about eminence, the do good because Jesus is returning verses. These are the verses that say things like uh, do good works because, uh, you know, Jesus is returning. That's obviously a terrible paraphrase, but there's lots of them that say something to the effect of, of that. And pre-tribulationalists interpret that as, well, it must be saying that we need to do good works, uh, live moral lives uh, because Jesus is returning because uh, what it must mean is that Jesus is going to return at any moment and surprise us uh, while we're sinning. So we need to do good works in order to prevent him from showing up at any time and catching me sinning. And so there there has been a doctrine about sanctification in pre-tribulationalism that really takes that and runs with it and says, well, pre- the belief in imminence that Jesus could return at any moment before I finish the sentence is actually what's keeping Christians in the straight and narrow. That The fear that they could get caught sinning is how the Christian lives a moral life. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. Uh, the, the, the sanctification is the Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out, uh, softening your heart, making you want the things of God and hate the things of evil. You begin to do good works because you love the Lord and you want to follow him and put to death the flesh. So the question that I ask in the film, well, what, what do we do with all these verses that seem to suggest that we need to do good, good works, because of the rapture? Because that's kind of what a lot of them say. They don't say why we should do good works because of the rapture. Uh, but if you quote the verses and quote the other verses that say the same thing, except they don't say do good works because of the rapture, they say do good works because of eternal life. It's the same thing, except instead of the rapture, it mentions eternal life. First Corinthians 15 is a great example. I, I show them all in the film uh, and go through all the details. But what the, the, the thing is being talked about in all of those verses is do good works in light of the fact that you have been given eternal life. And of course, the rapture, the reason why in the in the minority of the verses it, it specifically mentions the rapture is because that's the moment that you get your eternal life. It's sort of interchangeable with saying eternal life is his return uh, in the way that Paul often does and says that day is the day that he's going to get his rewards and be with the Lord that day, that day. But he'll also reference that day in the light of the rapture or eternal life or whatever. They're interchangeable. And when you understand that, then you rec- recognize that what's being said there is do good works because our, 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 it, it's sure. A death, where is your sting? I think Christians, if they grasped onto that biblical concept that's so throughout the New Testament, that, that really understands and, and puts in your heart and just holds it there, that our lives, our bodies, look at your hands right now. You're going to live forever. The thing that all the, the evil uh, tyrants out there are trying to do with their 
their computers and whatever we've been given as a gift, eternal life. We're going to be on the new heavens and new earth, this earth. It'll be new, but a new heavens and new earth. And we're going to be walking around with great, wonderful, glorified bodies with who knows what God has in store for those who love him. I don't know, but it's going to be awesome. He had stuff to do for the angels before we were even here. It's not like we're the pinnacle of all things that happen. Uh, we're going to judge angels, whatever that means. I mean, but we're also going to be living lives. It's going to be just tremendous. But the fact that we have eternal lives lives is what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 15. Do good works because you know that your labor isn't in vain. Out of a free heart, out of a desire to, to follow the Lord, you know that your good works aren't in vain. You know you've got this amazing thing, this, this gift of eternal life. And I feel like you get that theology as opposed to, you know, you should do good works because Jesus is going to come back and you're going to get, you're going to get caught sinning. And so you better, and that's, that's just terrible. That's wrong. And it's a lot like the seventh day Adventist idea of, of the secret judgment of Christ. You have to be sinlessly perfect at the moment that Jesus will judge you, which could happen at any moment. They of course said that Jesus returned in 1890 and whatever it was, 1894, some, something like that. But, you know, and then so they had to say, well, he actually did. The thing is, he did return in 1890, whatever, but now he's sort of judging people and it's taken 2,000 years to do or one th- whatever, 100 years. I don't know. Anyway, off the subject there. So those are my four reasons. Number one, Jesus commands us to watch. Number two, pre-tribbers getting di- uh, disillusioned and possibly deceived if they are a part of the last generation. That one really only p- applies to uh, pre-tribbers in the last generation. Accepting your uh, death uh, as terrible as it may be, is freeing and lets you look at life in a different light. And the last one is about theology. You get to get rid of the unbiblical idea of the fear about uh, imminence, and you get, in exchange, the wonderful understanding of doing good works in light of eternal life and really embracing understanding as a part of your day-to-day Christian life is a game changer. And that's what the Bible says. It is a game changer. Somehow that dwelling on that and understanding that is like what sort of moves a lot of the gears. It's just that animates a lot of the, uh, the, the desires to live the Christian life is this concept of, wow, what a gift that is. Another thing that I wanted to talk about today was the revealing of the Antichrist. So in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul says there are two things that will happen before the day of the Lord. They are the apostasia and the revealing of the Antichrist. Now, in I just read a comment that somebody had said that, well, isn't the revealing of the Antichrist the covenant? As opposed to why are you saying that the revealing of the Antichrist is at the midpoint and him sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God, the abomination of desolation? Where are, you, where are you getting this idea that his revealing is only accomplished after the midpoint as opposed to the uh, covenant? Because, of course, it has implications, especially for the pre-tribulationalists. What I would say to that is that if you want to believe that Paul said the revealing of the Antichrist, because he mentions that word twice in Second Thessalonians 2, uh, in what seems to be in association with the the temple, Paul never talks about the covenant being made with the Antichrist. It's never it's that issue about the making the covenant with many in Daniel nine twenty seven. 
appears to me to never be mentioned again in the entire Bible. I'm not saying it's not important or that I don't believe it. I certainly do believe that that's what happens that starts the the seven, 70th week of Daniel, but it's just not it's not something anybody mentions again. I'm not trying to make a big deal about that. I'm just saying that, well, let's read 2 Thessalonians 2, see what Paul says about it. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul goes straight to the whole abomination at the midpoint. Now, I will say that in English here, and I would assume in Greek, it's not, I mean, it seems to me, and I think it seems to most people to be understood, and this is, by the way, not just pre-Rathers or something like that, Uh, John MacArthur, John Walverd, two extremely prominent pre-tribulationalists, also recognize that Paul is referencing the revealing of the man of, uh, uh, of lawlessness, the revealing of the Antichrist is at the midpoint when he reveals that he doesn't just think he's a good guy. He reveals that he thinks he's God. So that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Hey, everybody, I'm God now and you all should worship me. So I think here's my, I think one of the points I want to, I want to make two main points here. The first is if you want to say that the first thing, the making the covenant is the revealing of the antichrist. You need to do that with no, proof, no backup, just the ideal idea that you think you know how it's going to go. As I mentioned in the last podcast, we don't know much about that. We're given one line about that in Daniel 9, 27. He makes a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he ends sacrifices uh, and offerings. So that's all we really know. He makes a covenant with many, and then halfway through, he stops sacrifices. That's it. And so if you think you know that that's his revealing, that's fine. But you're doing, as long as you know that that's your own sort of choice with no biblical uh, proof text. But if you want to say that the revealing of the man of lawlessness is at the midpoint with the abomination of desolation, you have first here in Second Thessalonians 2, what appears to be a direct proof text if Paul is sort of making the connection uh, uh, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, comma, the son of production, comma, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or, or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It could be that Paul is just kind of going on a rant here and naming some other things that he knows about the Antichrist. Um, but I don't think so. And I think I would need somebody to maybe dig deeper into the Greek here to see if there's any proof that when he says that he's definitely connecting the two things, but I think just that may be overthinking it. I think it's fairly obvious that he thinks that the revealing of the man of of lawlessness is in fact uh, at the midpoint. And here's, here's an idea uh, that I thought about that. I think one of the reasons he is revealed at that point, one of the, why it would be even called revealed other than the fact that he does reveal his true colors in a sense but I would submit that it's not in the way a lot of people think of it. Like they they think they think, oh, he was pretending to be peaceful and now he's pretending he doesn't care anymore. I don't actually think that that's what's happening. Yes, you could say, well, the revealing means that he now revealed himself that he thinks he's God and that he revealed to everybody that now, as a result of that, you need to worship me. But I think that the way the Bible talks about it, 
the abomination of desolation is the centerpiece of the things that Jesus told us to watch for. When you see the abomination of desolation, both before and after that, are, 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 is he speaking of the events surrounding the abomination of desolation? Really, really, the abomination of desolation is the centerpiece of, of all prophetic uh, warnings. When you see the abomination of desolation, um, in other words, I don't think that there's going to be any pretender do anything like that. Like there may be pretenders, I mean, especially with this weird interpretations people have of the peace deal or whatever. You've got 790 million peace deals that you can point at and say, ah, there it is. There's the Antichrist. Uh, maybe it was Bill Clinton back in 1990, whatever, or whatever, just because of peace deal, right? But the abomination of desolation, when you see uh, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, i.e., let the reader go back and read what Daniel had to say about it, which Paul apparently did because Paul knows exactly what's happening, sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God. My point is, that event is going to be like no other event. If you had any questions whether or not your guy, your, your candidate was the Antichrist, and he doesn't sit in a temple declaring himself to be God, it's not him. But, but, we won't know for sure until that happens. When that happens, it's the signal. Everything in the Bible is about that event. So you will know. I will know for sure as soon as that event happens. I will have a pretty good idea that it's going to happen, that this guy's the Antichrist. If he's doing some of the other things that I think he's going to do, he's going to fight these battles uh, with uh, Egypt and Assyria and try to get Edom and Moab and Ammon, but they escape from his hands and all that stuff happens. I'll have a pretty good idea it's him. But when, when he sits in the temple declaring himself to be God, then I'll know. Because I honestly, I won't really know even at this, the covenant, because I just got one verse on that. I've got, what, 30 verses on the sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God and everything surrounding the midpoint of the abomination. Dates, not dates, but numbers all over the place. 42 months, 1,260 days, 1,290 days to Armageddon and, uh, you know, all that stuff. Time, times, and a half a time. So to wrap that point up, the revealing is the revealing because it's a revelation to us. It's the moment that Jesus says, when you see, it's the moment we'll all know that that guy is the Antichrist. In other words, nobody is going to do that, I don't think. I think that's what we can count on. No, there's going to be nobody doing that um, until the Antichrist does it. Obviously, nobody's going to do it after that. Well, Jesus is going to do it after that, but you know what I mean. That is to say, Jesus, <laughs> I better explain myself, Jesus is going to sit in a temple and I don't know if he's going to declare himself to be God, but he is going to be God in a temple, in the millennial temple. That's what last, last what, eight chapters of Ezekiel are about, the millennial period, uh, everything. Uh, they will come to worship the Lord in the millennial kingdom, and he will be in the temple. So it's a real thing that will happen, uh, but it will also happen before that with the Antichrist, according to the Bible. All right, I also wanted to mention the idea that I think that one of the reasons they want a race war, and I put this on Twitter the other day, is that I think at the end of whatever that is, like they could let that chaos just run. And I, I do believe that once uh, a number of sort of back and forth deaths happen, you get sort of the gang war issue happening. And of course, they're, my whole thing is that I was 
I mean, we were doing so good with eliminating racist uh, uh, thoughts. I mean, we just we just needed a few more generations, but the uh, and it would be at, almost gone. Uh, but they stoked this race war so hard that they're going to actually create racism again, because of course you're going to have people killing their people, and they're going to be seeing that in their in their feeds and like you're killing my people. I'm going to go kill your people, and this gang war thing starts, and the, the whole thing is like let's put our hands off and let the take the police out of the equation and let people just kill each other. And what will come and the reason they want the civilians to do the killing of one another and the reason that they want they don't really care how much chaos happens. And I'm, I'm saying we haven't seen anything yet in terms of the chaos that they want. And that's in part because conservatives haven't really gone and, and fought back. I mean, we've been resilient in that way. Thankfully, it's not going to last long. But as soon as really the conservatives start doing their thing and you start to get the counter retaliations and then something or other will happen and it just sparks it into this massive thing and like actual shootings and of a lot, a lot of people. And then that'll, of course, spark more shootings, you know, greater shootings and bands of people with guns that will go and shoot somebody. Then after all that craziness of just complete, complete uh, madness and dead bodies all over the place, then... I don't even think then. I think there's yet more, maybe even after the chaos of whatever comes after the election and all that stuff, and then sort of added to that, it's like what what we learned from this this situation is in part that this is what happens if we have guns. Uh, And I think that while there's many uses for a race war, the chaos and getting the, the... what they want out of that, the government to world government to rise out of the ashes of it. I think a part of that is taking the guns away as well, because you can't uh, have a, have a good world government with uh, people having guns. And it's just really, really hard to take people's guns. Uh, Especially, I, I don't think anything like it has ever been tried. At least the way that America feels about guns. Um, We're going to need, there needs to be a major psyop to happen if they want, it to go in any way smoothly. So I think that will help to get as many people as they can on board with the necessity of, of, of a world without guns in the, in the hands of anybody but the state. So that's probably what's going to happen, whether it was the intention or not. I feel like that's uh, where that's all going. Um, the final thing I wanted to say and is about victory. And I think it's important not to lose sight of, the ultimate victory that we have as Christians that we've already won. And I think this goes back to the eternal life thing. And it really, uh, it just goes to show you how much it's just impacted everything that I think about. And and again, why it's so important to believe correctly about the rapture is that the idea that if you have, you have such an overwhelming victory in this, in that not just eternal life for you, but for those people in Christ that you love. I mean, the victory is won. Oh, death, where is your sting? And that was in a time when people are, were being killed in the streets. Paul got beheaded, uh, and he certainly wasn't. I mean, Peter got crucified upside down. These are, And yet they say things like that. Death, where is your sting? Well, didn't it hurt when you got beheaded, Paul? No. He was happy to do it, I'm sure. So I will remind you before you go, Hey, go uh, review the the podcast on iTunes or wherever, Bible Prophecy Talk. Check it out. Uh, uh, leave a review and help to counteract some of the uh, stuff that uh, good old Google is doing. And uh, thanks all for listening. We'll see you next time.